Hello, everybody. Recording live from somewhere. Lord, on the mercy. All night, Sunday, Central. Follow me now. Listen, say hi, take your shit, rolling hip hop. Say Jay Roll, just your rolling hip hop. Redefinition, say you're rolling hip hop. Say Black Soul, come to Rocket Gun. From the first to the last of it, delivery is passionate. The whole and not the half of it. Forecasting after math of it. Project I let them blast away. Welcome to another episode of the Etymology Rules Podcast, where I discuss etymology and all things language, because I truly believe that etymology rules, words matter, and you should better understand them so you can cultivate your mind. I'm your host, Brittany Salali Bay, author and founder of Etymology Rules, where we aim to equip people worldwide with the knowledge and power of words. So a couple updates for you. Number one, it's finally here. Etymology Rules Back to Basics is available today. And I'm really excited because, as many of you know, this has been a long journey. Self-publishing is not easy, and I honestly could do a whole podcast on that in itself. So I want to thank everyone who's been patient over the past few years. And, you know, please go check it out at my website, etymologyrules.com. It's great for educators, for parents, writers, wordsmiths. Anybody who has a deep love and appreciation for words, uh, you know, shout out to all the rappers out there. Y'all supposed to be wordsmiths. So I encourage you to dig deep and get a great understanding of that which you use for your craft. And secondly, I recently published my first short story on the Kairos Literary Magazine, which is kind of surreal, to be honest. Um, I started writing fiction while I started back writing fiction about three years ago and this was a story that I actually started three years ago so um, through a lot of edits and reads from family members and friends we're finally here. The story is called The Telephone Game and it's a cross between surrealism and realistic fiction. I'm hoping it's the first of many because as much as I love linguistics I also love creative fiction so please check it out. You can find it at tinyurl.com backslash the telephone game. So let's get into this etymology rules book list. We can officially add 100 Years of Solitude by Gabriel Garcia Marquez to the list because I recently finished it. And here are my thoughts, which I haven't fully processed. And I'll most likely have to reread this to really understand it. But this is a story of a town and how it and one of its founding families changes over time. As I'm learning, magical realism, like most speculative fiction, uses phantasmagorical elements to make social and political critiques. So Marquez seemed to be critiquing colonization, capitalism, and industrialization, which often comes from Western nations like the US, which in itself is problematic, as Western nations create the conditions that leave formerly colonized nations in poverty. And if you want to learn more about this, check out Wretched of the Earth by Franz Fanon. Marquez also critiques the Catholic Church, machismo, which today we would probably call toxic masculinity, and likewise what it means to be a woman. This is what stood out for me. But there are some other major themes that are included, such as time. The message here is that time doesn't cease until the end. It is fluid. It can be both linear and 
it can zigzag, and it is seamless. This is evident through the way that the narrative is written. There are no chapter titles. They're not even numbered. And as if all the events just flow together, the book just kind of has one narrative with many narratives within it. The paragraphs are pages long, and the sentences are about paragraph length in some places. And there's very little dialogue, lots of exposition. A lot keeps happening. It's always moving. It kind of reminds me of that song, Keep On Moving by Soul to Soul. Uh, I really enjoyed that aspect of it, though. So that's you know the first theme that was a check for me. The second is humor. Now, this is said to be read and enjoyed, not overanalyzed with serious academic eyes, despite the fact that it did win a Nobel Peace Prize. Marquez himself said that the book is about a family that didn't want their children to be born with pigtails. And, you know, he says this flippantly because there's so much more to the book. Um, honestly, there's a lot of ridiculousness in this book as well as political satire. And when I read it, I think I either tried to read it too seriously or at the end I felt like maybe I should have read it more seriously to better understand it. But I also really enjoyed being swept away by the narrative it was kind of all over the place, and that's just fine because that's how I like my books and that's how I like my TV shows. So humor was a check for me as well. The third theme is fate, and the message here is we must accept the fate we are given for peace of mind, which is for all of us time being limited. For the Buendias, most of this time is spent in solitude or at least away from each other. Those that did find joy in love did not get to have it for long. And all of their quests failed or their dreams became lost. As I said, we must accept our fate for peace of mind, which is most evident by the end of the book, which I won't tell you because I don't do spoilers. And I'm going to encourage you guys to read this book. The last theme that was a check for me is magic. It's probably like the biggest check. Now, this book is also known for its magic, which is, which as noted earlier, is often used in magical realism so writers can subtly get their political views across. And interestingly, I just started watching Narcos, which was created by Chris Brancanto. It's a TV show that uh, you can watch on Netflix. And it's set in Colombia, which is where uh, Marquez is from and which is where 100 Years of Solitude was set. And it tells a true-to-life account of Pablo Escobar and the Medellin cartel. And the cool part about this is that the title card of the show reads as follows. Magical realism is defined as what happens when a highly detailed, realistic setting is invaded by something too strange to believe. There is a reason magical realism was born in Colombia. I guess that is to say that what Escobar sought to do falls into the realm of magical realism because he rose from humble beginnings to become one of the wealthiest men in the world. Uh, he became a billionaire. So on to what I'm currently reading. It's another magical realism novel, which is entitled White is for Witching by my girl, Helen Oyeyemi. If you guys have been listening to the show, you know that Helen Oyeyemi is one of my favorite authors of this day and time. And I've read now three books of hers, and I haven't been disappointed yet. But I just started, so I don't have too much to share here. But I can tell you that it's about four generations of women in England that are extremely connected. 
and the teenage girl's mother passes away and she starts experiencing strange ailments soon after. In addition, when she brings a friend home, the house becomes hostile toward any outsiders. This book is said to be a meditation on race, nationality, and family legacies. So I'm excited to get into it, and we'll talk about it next month when I will have it finished and have my next podcast episode. I am also revisiting Word by Word, The Secret Life of Dictionaries by Corey Stamper, which tells us all about lexicography. I will most definitely be doing an episode on lexicography when I finish, although some of the concepts will overlap with today's topic. Speaking of which, this episode is entitled, It's Just Semantics, where I give you a crash course in semantics. This is such a broad field, so trust me, I'm just touching on some of the basics. But the first question to answer is, what is semantics? The linguistic term semantics is the study of the meaning of words. It comes from the French semantique, a term coined by the French philologist Michel Briel in his 1897 publication, Essai de Semantique, which is basically an essay on the science of significations. For this reason, Briel is known as the father of modern semantics. Now the French semantique comes from the Greek semantikos, which means significant, and that comes from the Greek verb semanin, which means to show by sign, to signify, to point out, or to indicate by a sign. And semanin comes from the Greek noun sema, which means sign, mark, token, omen, portent, or constellation. And this little nugget for all my true word nerds, the Proto-Indo-European root of semantic is D-H-E-I-E, which means to see or to look. So basically, semantics refers to what a word signifies. But interestingly, we have a couple other meanings or usages for the word semantics, which in itself is a semantic concept that we'll address in a moment. As noted by the Oxford English Dictionary, some definitions include, one, relating to divination through the interpretation of signs. This was first attested in 1665, but the usage is pretty much obsolete. Second, semantics is used to refer to the pedantic quibbling over the precise or technical meaning of words. This is the meaning that we're most familiar with. So for example, when we say climate change instead of global warming, and someone makes an argument for one term over the other, it is often reduced to being, quote-unquote, just semantics. By using the phrase, it's just semantics, we reduce the conversation to a trivial argument about meaning, and thus, it's deemed unimportant. This is just a way of saying that your view is more valid than another person's. And this is a form of semantic stopping, as we discussed in December's episode, All About Cults. According to Ginny Lerder, assistant professor and linguistics advisor at San Francisco State University, saying something is just semantics implies that ideas and arguments can be separated from words and phrases used to encode those ideas. In other words, we are arguing about meaning, we are arguing about ideas at the same time. And the words that we choose to express those ideas can signify our understanding of that idea. 
So it matters because, as we said in the beginning, words matter. So let's back up to the global warming versus climate change example. To all my 80s babies, shout out to y'all and to myself, remember growing up in the 90s and hearing all that talk about global warming? Well, you know, the terms are often used interchangeably, but the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration offers this distinction. Global warming refers only to the Earth's rising surface temperature, while climate change includes warming and the side effects of warming, like melting glaciers, heavier rainstorms, or more frequent drought. Said another way, global warming is one symptom of the much larger problem of human-caused climate change. The NOAA also notes that the Earth has experienced climate change before. Think about the end of the Ice Age, when more sunlight reached the northern hemisphere, causing temperatures to rise and ice sheets to melt. So climate change can exist independent of human causes. But one could say that global warming is a symptom of human-produced climate change, which is why we typically use the terms interchangeably. Today, the use of the term climate change takes precedence, and really for political reasons. According to a University of Michigan study published by the Public Opinion Quarterly, which was conducted by Jonathan Schultz, more people believe in climate change than in global warming. So over 2,000 people were surveyed in this research, and 74% of the people that were surveyed thought that the problem was real when it was referred to as climate change, while 68% that it was real when it was referred to as global warming. When researchers surveyed participants based on party lines, they found that 60% of Republicans reported that they thought climate change was real, while 44% said they believe in the reality of global warming. In contrast, about 86% of Democrats thought climate change was a serious problem, no matter what it's called. This shows us that the issue of which language to use is all about public perception. The New York Times writes that global warming elicits images of, quote, shaggy-haired liberals, economic sacrifices, and complex scientific disputes. According to polling and focus group sessions conducted by the nonprofit environmental marketing firm EcoAmerica, founder Robert Perkowitz finds that some associate global warming with politicized, polarized argument and see it as code for progressive liberals gay marriage, and other such issues. Thus, calling the effect on our planet global warming versus climate change is not, quote-unquote, just semantics. Well, okay, it is semantics, but it's not just semantics because each term has a different meaning to English speakers based on their political affiliation. And this is what semantics covers. Word meanings derived from our usages and contextual understanding, which can change over time. A quick note, semantics is also used in the fields of philosophy and computer science. And this is another semantic lesson, showing us that context matters when we consider a word's meaning. But back to the world of linguistics, why is the study of semantics so important? For one reason, it helps us understand how words derive meaning. So we have the luxury of just looking words up in the dictionary, but lexicographers 
have to figure out the meaning themselves. And just as a reminder, a lexicographer is a person who writes a dictionary. So when lexicographers come up with meaning to put in said dictionary, they have no reference other than how people use the words. And because definitions are clear and concise ways of explaining what a word means, and we use words to do this, as seen in dictionaries, because words don't carry meaning on their own, it's really critical that we get this right. To determine a word's meaning is to understand the relationship one word has to another. Again, why does all this matter? Doesn't this seem obvious? Well, not really, because there have been three main conceptions of meaning, and those three have dominated throughout history, at least in the early studies of semantics. The first conception is that words name things. We call this uh, the referent theory, which it can be found in Plato's Cratylus. So it goes pretty far back, this idea. In theory, we could point to something to refer to its meaning. So if a child asks me what a chair is, I can define it by pointing to the chair. But the problem here is that we can't necessarily point to something to define it because a, everything can't be pointed to. Some examples might include the word life and the word tradition. I can't really point to those things to identify the meaning. And B, if we can point or refer to an object to define a word, how would a person know from that experience how to assign the word to other objects in the world? They'd only know that specific item as the word. So for example, if I point to a specific chair to define the word, how would someone know when to call another object in the world a chair? That's why we form a prototypical definition of a chair, using other words to call out distinguishing features of the chair. So in this sense, we define a chair as a seat with four legs and a back, even though we know there are various types of chairs that don't necessarily 100% meet this definition, but we have to be able to start somewhere and that's with the prototype. Thus, we must use other words to define a particular word. So semantics can also be viewed as the study of how words relate to one another, not what they reference. Semantics studies a word sense and we must rely on other words to explain a particular word sense. That's like the big takeaway here. The second major concept regarding meaning is that the relationship between words and things can only be made in our mind. So for every word, there is an associated concept. The linguists Ogden and Richards formulated what is now called the semiotic triangle to demonstrate this. Here's how it goes. The object evokes the writer's thought. The writer refers the object to the written symbol. The symbol evokes the reader's thought. And lastly, the reader refers the symbol back to the object. Sounds clear cut and simple enough, but the problem here is that every word we say does not correspond to a neat visual image. So when I say table, we don't all have the same visual image, meaning our conceptualization of a table differs. And for language to be an effective means of communication, which lexicography can aid in, there must be some level of standardization. That's why lexicographers are super important. 
The third concept is from the, it's called the external response theory, which comes from the behaviorist school of thought. The 20th century linguist Leonard Bloomfield argued that verbal behavior, how we speak, is influenced by context. His model indicates that a stimulus prompts a speaker or a writer to communicate an idea, which is received by a reader or a listener, who then provides a response. For example, Saskia is hungry and she sees an apple. This is the stimulus. She then verbally requests the apple from Jonathan. Jonathan takes this verbal request and gives her the apple, which is the response. All of this is to say that meaning comes from a speaker's reality and not from an external historical point of view. The problem here is that it is difficult to demonstrate what the relevant features of the stimulus response are, which is a problem when events are not clearly visible in physical terms. An example of this would be the expression of feelings. Those are not necessarily clear cut. And it's also difficult to assign meaning when people don't act in the way that we would predict. So in the previous example with Saskia and Jonathan and the apple, what if Jonathan did not give Saskia the apple? That would skew our, uh, the meaning that we make using the external stimulus model. So at one time, linguists conceived the referent theory they conceived that the referent theory, the semiotic triangle, and the external stimulus response theory uh, as being in competition. But it is better to see them as potentially compatible theories that are concerned with different aspects or levels of meaning. They've helped us understand that semantic studies, the detailed analyses of the way words and sentences are used in specific contexts. This is how we assign meaning to words. Since words are explained by other words, we consider sense relationships between words. That means we look at how words should be organized. Some of those relationships include synonymy, that's looking at synonyms like youth and youngster, or regal and royal. Also, antonymy, looking at antonyms. And there are different types of antonyms. One type is called gradable antonyms, like big, small, good, bad, etc., And these allow for the expression of degrees. So you could say something is very big, something is quite small, somewhat bad, kind of good, etc. Another type of antonym is the non-gradable antonym, which is also called a complement. Examples of this includes single married, which do not permit degrees of contrast. At one point, male and female would have been considered complements. But I wonder if that's the case today, since uh, we discuss gender as a spectrum and consider gender fluidity, as well as the idea that gender itself is not binary. So this is somewhere where lexicographers have to respond to our shifting understandings in society. And that doesn't always match up. Like the dictionaries don't always shift with the times. But I will say that is definitely the goal of a lexicographer. And another type of antonym would be a converse term. Examples include by, sell, or parent, child. And in this case, these are two-way contrasts, and they are interdependent. And one member presupposes the other. 
So we've talked about synonyms. We've talked about antonyms. Now let's talk about hyponyms and hypernyms. These are words referring to a specific member of a broader category, like a dog is a type of animal or red is a type of color. The hyponym is the specific word. That would be dog or red. The hypernym is the broader category. That would be animal or color. So these are ways that, these are just a few ways that we can categorize words in terms of their relationships to one another. But let's also consider this. Some words can have more than one meaning, and some words have the same shape, but are different words altogether. Words with more than one meaning are polysemous. So that comes from the Greek roots poly, which means many, sem, which is related to semantics, so that's meaning, and the suffix us, O-U-S, indicating that this word is an adjective. So an example of a polysemous word would be chip. Chip can be defined as a piece of wood, a food item, or an electronic circuit. And this would be understood to be three different words. Now words in which the words have the same shape as others are called homonyms. And that comes from the Greek roots homo, which means same, and onym, which means name. And it's spelled and sounds similar to synonym, which indicates similar meanings between two words, versus antonym, which indicates opposite or different meanings between two words. But a homonym has the same name. So an example of this would be the word bank. A bank can be a building and a bank can be an area of ground. Just note that homonyms can be further classified as homophones and homographs. There, there, and there. So that's there as in I'm going over there. There as in that's their sandwich, don't touch it. And there as in they are, the contraction they are. These are all examples of homophones. Here we see homo again, which means same. And then phone, sound. So homophones are words with different spellings, but they have the same pronunciation, the same sound. Then you have lead and lead, which are homographs. Homo meaning same, and graph means writing. So they're words that are spelled the same, but they have different pronunciations. Now, as I said earlier, when we look at polysemous or homonyms, ho polysemous words or homonyms, we understand these for the most part to be different words, but we really rely on looking at the etymology of the words to determine if they truly are different. For example, if you look at the etymology of the word table, you see table as the table that's a piece of furniture and table as an arrangement of data, those words actually have the same origin. They both come from a Latin word, tabula. However, when we look at lead and lead, it's clear that they are different words because lead, which is a noun and is a heavy metal, comes from the Old English lead, which again refers to the heavy metal. Then you have lead, which is a verb, which means to guide, and that comes from the Old English leaden, which means cause to go with oneself, march at the head of, 
go before as a guide or to accompany and show the way. But homophones can get tricky. So, for example, look at the word bear or the words bear because you have bear the animal and then you have bear the verb, which means to carry. These are both homophones because they sound the same and homographs because they're spelled the same. And they really are considered two different words because they have completely different origins. The animal bear comes from the Old English bera, which comes from the Proto-Indo-European root, which is spelled B-H-E-R, and that means light brown. And the verb bear, as in to bear one another's burdens, comes from the Old English beran, and the Proto-Indo-European root is also B-H-E-R, but this is a different meaning of B-H for B-H-E-R. Um, it means to carry. So looking at the etymology can help us understand when you have two different words versus a word with many meanings. And just to make things even more confusing, bear, spelled B-A-R-E, is a homophone to bear, spelled B-E-A-R. So I can understand when people say things like, English is so difficult, it's really hard to grasp because there's so many words that sound the same, so many words that have similar meanings. I completely understand that. Vocabulary is probably one of the trickiest parts of English. Although there is rhyme and reason to English, and if you want to understand how English operates, buy my book, Etymology Rules, Back to Basics, available on my website today, etymologyrules.com. All right, so we've been doing all this conversation about semantics. Let's talk about one of my favorite semantic conversations to have. And the question that we ask ourselves to begin this conversation is, what is a sandwich? So I'm going to give you a minute to think about that. What is a sandwich? Okay, do you have your idea? Because we're about to go in. Now, this idea of what is a sandwich is something that I first started discussing with my policy debate team when teaching this, uh, this argument called topicality. Topic topicality is a policy debate argument, and it covers the meaning of like the key words in the debate, and it identifies what the topic of that debate is through the resolution, and then we look at the words in said resolution, and we determine what our interpretation of the, those words are so that we as a debate team and our opponents are debating about the same thing. So it's essentially a debate on the interpretation of words in a resolution that's being argued, and that sets the stage for the topic that we are discussing in the debate. So when we talk about what a sandwich is, this activity is called tacocality. Not topicality, but tacocality. Students are given uh, the following resolution. The only thing that, that can be eaten for lunch at school is sandwiches. I'll say it again. The only thing that can be eaten for lunch at school is sandwiches. The affirmative, the team that affirms or is in favor of the resolution, runs a plan saying that we as a school should implement Taco Tuesdays. And then the negative, which negates the plan of the affirmative, argues that you can't do that because tacos are not sandwiches. Thus, that doesn't fall under the topic, which is sandwiches for school lunch. The negative says that sandwiches must include at least two slices of bread. 
the courts have ruled that sandwiches don't include tacos. Of course, you have to have evidence for the claims that you make. So their evidence comes from a court in Boston who in 2006 ruled that a sandwich includes at least two slices of bread. And under this definition, the court found that the term sandwich is not commonly understood to include burritos, tacos, or quesadillas, which are typically made with a single tortilla. Uh, now, this is a real court case. I know this is a debate activity, but this is based on real evidence. The issue stemmed from the question of whether a restaurant that sold burritos could move into a shopping center where another restaurant had a non-compete clause in its lease prohibiting other sandwich shops. And the ruling was that because burritos, tacos, and quesadillas are made with a single tortilla and not two slices of bread, it is not a sandwich and the, the shop with the burritos was able to open in the, sh in the same shopping center. So that's the argument stance. They say, you know, um, tacos are not sandwiches. So you cannot do a Taco t Tuesday under the resolution. Now, the affirmative will argue that they meet the negative's interpretation because they say that sandwiches need bread and tortillas are bread. And this is their definition of bread. They say the wheat flour tortilla was originally derived from the corn tortilla, which is a bread of maize. Read that a bread of maize, which predates the arrival of Europeans to the Americas. It is made with an unleavened water-based dough, pressed and cooked like corn tortillas. So, you know, looking at this definition of bread, which the previous definition that the, that the negative offered said that sandwiches needed bread, this definition of bread says that a tortilla is a form of bread. It may not be the form of bread that we understand today and you know quite honestly looking at this it kind of sounds like Europeans try to colonize food which that's a whole nother topic but like how the Europeans gonna come in and be like this is not bread we get to say what bread is that tortilla is not bread so I am more inclined to lean towards this understanding unless I was the negative then I'd be like no that's trash but because I'm neutral I, I kind of vibe with the idea that uh, a corn tortilla is indeed bread. All right. Now, the affirmative not only says that their definition meets the negative's interpretation, they say that they also offer a counterinterpretation, which is that sandwiches are food stuffed into something with carbs. It's all the same thing. According to an article published in the Harvard Crimson in 2009, uh, and that article is entitled, That's a Wrap, the Truth Behind Sandwiches. Members of Congress were divided into sandwich radicals, liberals, and purists. The purists accepted only the traditional two-slice model. They held that the sandwich, they held the idea that the sandwich must pass the triangle test. If it could be cut into a triangle, it was good enough to be called a sandwich. Um, I will say that you can definitely cut a tortilla into triangles. So I think, um, or at least a quesadilla can be cut into triangles. So, you know, if the argument was about quesadilla Tuesdays, then that would, that would vibe. I mean, I don't know if I cut a taco a certain way, I guess that could be considered a triangle as well. So, you know, while this is the more traditional view, I think my taco could stand up to that. 
The moderate liberals rejected the wrap and the burrito and the spring roll as a as a sandwich, but they did accept the open faced sandwich and the decidedly non triangular bagel roll, which the radicals, on the other hand, accepted anything stuffed in carbs as a sandwich. In addition to wraps, it includes burritos, quesadillas, hot dogs, and as we've been talking about, tacos. So in this activity, students are asked to debate which interpretation has more validity. And while this may seem like a silly exercise, it's actually one getting young people to think about semantics, which helps them to strengthen their work consciousness. And research shows that students, or just readers in general who have strong work consciousness, have strong liter literacy skills. As a reminder, word consciousness is just having a deep understanding and appreciation of words and you have like an acquisitive nature regarding words like you're always trying to understand the meaning looking at the many parts so that may be the morphemes that may be the spelling but you're just all in when it comes to words so semantics is a part of that and like I said learning semantics can help build literacy skills so talking about whether a taco is a sandwich brings us to the point that definitions matter in real life whether we are talking about political discourse or legal precedents, semantics is critical in helping us understand each other through the medium of words. And there's no better example as to why word meanings matter than looking at how we define race and racial groups. So in 1991, M. Lynn Murphy, a linguistics professor at the University of Sussex, conducted research on the problems with defining racial labels. In her research, she examines the definition of race in four heavily marketed dictionaries and addresses the misrepresentations in their definition of racial groups. The major pitfalls here are primarily due to the fact that race and racial terms are polysemous, but the dictionary surveyed only defined one among several salient senses of a given racial label. So the question is, what is the polysemous nature of race and the racial dis designations or distinctions that we use in America? Well, Murphy notes that the racial divisions are created and sustained for many purposes, which produces various definitions. And these definitions generate words with many faceted meanings, but none of them are useful in an objective discussion of race. And as an aside, I believe it's difficult to have an objective discussion of something that is socially constructed for subjugation purposes. That's what race is. It, was, it is socially constructed um, and it created a hierarchy to justify subjugation of particular quote unquote races. So it will inherently be subjective to have these kind of conversations because race is not something natural that exists objectively like cells, the brain, skin, etc. So biases will inevitably occur when creating definitions of racial labels and the biases will tend to lean towards the dominant group um, in terms of preferring the dominant group because they have a greater reach and they have a greater access to people and um, they're able to disseminate their interpretations and so these groups are able to semantically use racial labels to maintain power. In the study, Murphy also contends that 
black American, the black American community meets the criteria for an ethnic group, which is a common lineage. It's also a cultural and linguistic heritage. Um, she says that white America is not considered an ethnic group because they are defined solely in opposition to other groups. White Americans do not see themselves as a single ethnic group, and when asked their ethnicity, most will identify as a subgroup of European Americans, uh, one connected to their ancestral land. So that would be Italian American, Polish American, German American, etc. So here in and itself, you know, we we just have really conflicting concepts of what a race is, what race means, and even here, um, ethnicity. Now, back to race, the shift in the meaning of race is due to many purposes, particularly subjugation of some groups. At first, the racial distinctions of mongoloid, negroid, and cascoid were, purport were purported to be scientific and definite, even though it's clear that they are not. For example, uh, the cascoid or someone who's Caucasian would be racially synonymous to the term white. And, you know, that would scientifically refer to a range of skin colors from native Scandinavians to the Tamils of southern India and Sri Lanka. But when you think about who we call white, it doesn't include those who we scientifically call Caucasian or Cascoid based on um, location, right? The Caucasus Mountains would seem to have to play into what we, or who we call Caucas Caucasian or Cascoid, and yet when we use it to label somebody who was white, it doesn't include a whole range of people, a whole group of people who uh, live close to the Caucasus Mountains. Additionally, the U.S. Census racial distinctions are also inconsistent. The races li are listed as follows. So you have white, black, or African American. You have American Indian or Alaskan Native. And you have Asian uh, or Native Hawaiian or other Pacific Islander. And while white and black are based on color, African American, American Indian, Alaskan Native, Asian, Native Hawaiian, or other Pacific Islander are based on geographical locations. So in that sense, how is what is a race? Is a race based on your color, or is it based on um, the your geographical origin of your ancestors? Again, here we're seeing inconsistencies. According to the census, the Cascoid or Caucasians would actually refer to people from the Middle East, North Africa, and South Asia today. But these groups aren't really considered white. Although North Africans and Middle Easterns are considered white uh, as of late, according to the census, but not necessarily socially. And people from South or Central America are not socially seen as white, even if they are of European ancestry. This is likely because it's believed that they are more genetically mixed with non-Europeans than those directly coming to North America from Europe. So all this talk about race itself, uh, it's confusion. There's confusion here. And another aspect of the confusion is not just the racial groups, but how 
we define race or how we use the term race. So there are four contrary senses for the word race, and they are, one, the human race, so that's all of us, compared to um, another animal species. Second, subspecies, so cascoid or negroid or mongoloid would be considered a subspecies, although this is problematic because it's not really clear how this is defined or identified. It's rooted in phenotype traits, although scientists tried to tell us that it was genotype traits for many, many years. Uh, the third sense of race would be a nation or ethnic group, and we discussed that earlier, but if you're a German-American or you are German, that would be considered a race in, in one particular sense of the word race. And then lastly, a social group with similar physical markers, such as the Aboriginal Australians or um, how we use race in America today. But keep in mind, we use race in America in such a, a variety of ways. I think one of the main peop ways people understand race is that it's a social group with physical markers, um, particularly when you think about people who are considered black or people who are considered white. So even though Americans treat racial labels as constants, the reference of a racial label differ based on the label's meaning because the criteria to be a part of a racial category that differs from sense to sense of the same label. And this is why the referent theory of meaning does not always work, as we discussed earlier, because in this case, we can't point to the criteria that tell us something is a race because, again, that lacks consistency. Another difficulty in defining race is that we limit people to one specific racial category despite the fact that very few of us are of pure racial heritage. In fact, certain races contribute more to one's identity than others, that being evident through the one-drop rule. So if you're not familiar, the one-drop rule was a rule that existed um, during uh, during the time in which African Americans were enslaved or black people were enslaved and it said that if you had one drop, um, if there was one drop of your bloodline that was black, then you are black. It, it doesn't matter if you know there's more European in your bloodline or not. If they knew that you had one drop of black blood, then you were considered black. So uh, if you have black and white mixed ancestry, it socially means that you're black and the United States is the only place where they aren't really identified as mixed. And many people of mixed race are beginning to identify as both, but it's definitely been a fight and it's definitely difficult because they tend to be um, are told that they have to identify as one over the other. So in this sense, to be white is exclusionary while being black is inclusive. Again, as long as you have one drop, you are black. Whereas... Um, if you are seen to not have any other racial uh, bloodlines besides European, then you are white. So discussing the varying definitions of race and racial distinctions really highlights the importance of meaning. And meanings really matter even when we don't have a clear sense of them. So studying semantics helps us at least understand how we assign meaning to words and that word meanings are not stationary but shift over time with the tides of history and societal change. 
And since we've been talking about word meanings, this is a great time to introduce a new element of the podcast, which is the etymology rules word of the day, where I review a word's etymology and semantic shifts. Our first word is a word that we've probably said more in the past two years than we have in our whole lives. And that word is virtual. From virtual meetings, virtual learning, to virtual doctor's visits, the pandemic has forced many of us to physically closet ourselves away in an effort to socially distance. But to be honest, we haven't been able to truly socially distance ourselves since the days of AOL Instant Messenger, MySpace, and my personal favorite, Black Planet. And that is because technology allows us to socialize and interact through virtual platforms. But what does that word really mean? I find this to be interesting because the word has two contrary usages. The first being being actual, actually such in almost every respect. So if I said I married a virtual stranger and saying I married an actual stranger. And then the second sense is existing in essence or effect, though not an actual fact. Here's a sentence. The pandemic numbers are crazy. We're going back to virtual school. I'm sure that was a sentence a lot of parents dreaded and feared hearing. But here are two really opposite instances, virtual meaning actual and virtual meaning not actual. Let's talk about the etymology. This word was borrowed from the medieval Latin virtualis, which comes from the Latin virtus, meaning moral strength, excellence, potency, and manliness. And this comes from ver, or as in Latin, they would say were, because the V is pronounced like a W, which means man, which is the source of the word virtue. Okay, so virtue and virtual both have the root were, meaning man. The meaning being so in essence or effect, though not formally or actually, was first written in 1654 in a religious context. We find this in Bishop Jeremy Taylor's Real Presence, where it states, we affirm that Christ is really taken by faith. They say he is taken by the mouth and that the spiritual and the virtual taking him is not sufficient. So in that sense, they're using virtual to say um, it's not actually. Uh, I don't know if um, you guys have this experience just based on your religious upbringing or if you remember, but uh, those who grew up in a Christian church may remember um, when we drink the blood and eat the body. Uh, we did it every fourth Sunday and it was really drinking some grape juice and eating like a wafer or whatever. Um, but it was supposed to symbolize taking in the body and the blood of Jesus. And here it's saying that you're not virtually taking him in. You're not actually taking him in. Again, that was first written in 1654. The word goes back in English as far back as uh, 1398, and that would be in Middle English, where its earliest meaning appeared to mean possessing certain virtues or capacities, as in virtual light, virtual heat. And then later in 1432, 
it meant capable of producing an effect, effective or potent, as in the sun's virtual beams, a virtual speech or sermon. So it seems as if the original meaning of virtual in 1398 had to do with virtues and the term virtues was something that was associated with having moral strength but it was also associated with being manly it's very interesting um and then it took on the meaning of having an effect and then later on it took on the meaning of not formally or actually and then here's my sentence using the word virtual. After knowing each other for one month, I married a virtual stranger from the virtual world. Um, that would be really crazy, so I don't advocate you doing that. Also, it makes me think about the Tinder swindler. I don't know if y'all saw that on Netflix. That was crazy. So don't give money to people that you meet in the virtual world after one month. That was the lesson for me in that in that documentary. Um, I don't know if I needed that lesson, but I'm not here to judge. Anyway, I digress. Um, I'm going to have a second word just because it's Black History Month. And the second word is intersectionality, because this is so apropos for Black History Month. It was coined in 1989 by Professor Kimberly Crenshaw to describe how race, class, gender, and other individual characteristics intersect with one another and overlap. Intersectionality has, in a sense, gone viral over the past half decade, and that has resulted in backlash from the right. So um, it's not enough just to do research on things that happen to black people as a whole. We have to look at things that happen to black women, to black queer women, to black men, to black men who uh, live in a certain part of the country, to black men who live in urban areas, to black male children who live in rural area areas. Like we have to um, consider the, the intersecting characteristics that we all hold within this society. All right, so like I said, new segment. If you guys have word suggestions, feel free to email them to me at etymologyrules at gmail.com. Hopefully you're following me on Instagram, Twitter, Tumblr, uh, and on all those places. My handle is Etymology Rules. And so I opened up this episode with the song Definition from the album Most Deaf and Telequally Are Black Star. I just thought that that made a lot of sense because we're talking about semantics. And I'm going to close with Redefinition from the same album. Um, thank you for tuning in and look out for our next episode, part two of Dyslexia, where I will be speaking more about uh, the science, the technical side of dyslexia. We'll be talking to an educational psychologist. So I'm really excited. And remember that words matter. So etymology rules and use it to cultivate your mind. Peace. Shine eternally. We came to rock it on to the 